The old pilot's playing tales. The well-dressed aviator. It was the tradition of military officers of the British Empire to acquit themselves from one of the many military tailors who plied their trade from Savile Row in London. There are tailors there who made uniforms for the men who fought in the Battle of Waterloo. So when the gentlemen aviators of the First World War were looking for protective clothing to wear whilst doing battle over the trenches of the Somme, they visited establishments such as Alfred Dunhill's, where they were invited to alight for the best equipment, such as the Pilot Gauntlet, exceptionally flexible and fur-lined, a flying cap in the best Nutria and Chrome leather, featherweight triple X goggles, detachable fur collars for wonderful luxury in winter weather, sir, and fur-lined stockings, a necessity. Just right for a catalogue illustrating profusely all aviation equipments. Robinson and Cleaver of Regent Street could provide one with the RNAS-style flying coat in black leather for 90 shillings and fur-lined boots designed by expert at a mere £5.05. Shillings. Alternatively, for the RFC officer, a tan leather lined fleece aviation coat was on offer. Whilst the British military tailor was always looking to follow the latest trends for their customers, even into the air, and take advantage of their dress needs, the first significant stride towards providing effective protection for the pilot arrived from the genius of Sidney Cotton, a pilot with Number 8 Squadron Royal Flying Corps. He decided that he was going to be the best-dressed pilot of the 1917s, and his discovery followed a flight in the winter of the previous year when an unexpected scramble that occurred whilst he was working on the engine of his Bristol Scout meant that he ran to a spare aircraft still wearing his dirty overalls. On landing, he realised that, unlike his fellow pilots, who were all shivering from the cold, he was quite unaffected. Having thought through the occurrence, he realised that it was the oil and grease soaked into the overalls that he was wearing that had retained his body heat. Taking leave, he travelled to London to visit his tailors, Robinson and Cleaver, where he had a one-piece flying suit made to his design. The suit had three layers, a thin lining of fur, a layer of airproof silk, and an outer layer made of light Burberry, a hard-wearing fabric in which the yarn is waterproofed before weaving and used to make the famous Burberry gabardine. The suit was soon in great demand, 1,000 being delivered in the very first month, and the tailor registered the design on behalf of Cotton as the Sidcot suit, a portmanteau of the inventor's name. By the following winter, orders for leather flying coats were being cancelled and 3,000 Sidcot suits were ordered by the military authorities. 
This very efficient protective suit became highly prized by all aircrew and was the very first item to be confiscated from a British pilot should he be taken prisoner by the Germans. Indeed, Baron von Richthofen was wearing one when he was finally shot down. The Sidcot suit was so successful it remained in service in a number of modified forms right through World War II and only ceased being used when closed cockpits with cabin heating became the norm. It's worth taking a moment to delve into the life of Sidney Cotton, as the Sidcot suit was far from the most interesting thing he did with his life. Born in Queensland, Australia, he spent time in Britain being schooled and in New South Wales as a jackaroo, the name for a young stockman. In between the wars, he worked as a pilot in air races and performed various assignments in Newfoundland, including an airborne seal spotting service, as well as aerial search and rescue, as far away as Greenland. Shortly before World War II, he was recruited by military intelligence, MI6 to be precise, to take clandestine aerial photographs of the German military build-up. Flying a modified Lockheed 12A with three concealed cameras in the fuselage and a Leica hidden in the wing, his cover story was that he was a film producer, or possibly an archaeologist. Although his flight plans were dictated by the German government, he consistently managed to get away with flying off-track over military installations. Cotton had a very persuasive manner and exploited any advantage he could. On the eve of war, he even managed to engineer a joyride over German military airfields on one occasion accompanied by a senior Luftwaffe officer, Albert Kesselring. With Kesselring at the controls, Cotton quietly reached under his seat and operated the cameras, capturing the airfields on film. Cotton later offered to fly Hermann Goering to London for talks a week before hostilities broke out and claimed that his was the last civilian aircraft to leave Berlin before the outbreak of hostilities. When war was declared, Cotton was recruited to head the fledgling RAF Photographic Development Unit, greatly improving the RAF's capabilities. He wheedled a few Spitfires out of the RAF and later some Mosquitoes, which were highly polished and painted with a special PRU blue camouflage of Cotton's design. However, he undertook the unauthorised evacuation of British agents from France, including the head of the Christian Dior Empire, for which he took a large personal fee. Following his discovery, he was eased out of the military. However, he continued to advise both the RAF and the Navy on such projects as an airborne searchlight for night fighters. Despite his extracurricular activities, he was made an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire. After the war, he transported gold for the Pakistanis and airlifted weapons and medicines during the First Indo-Pakistan War, 
As a result, he later faced gun-running charges under the United Kingdom's Air Navigation Act and was fined £200. Whilst Frederick Sidney Cotton, OBE, was doing his bit for pilot comfort in Europe, there was an equally colourful character making contributions to the wardrobes of the best-dressed pilots in California. Leslie Leroy Irvin was five years old at the start of the 19th century, and he made his first steps into the history books at 16 as a stuntman for the 1914 movie Sky High. He was already flying in balloons, performing trapeze acrobatics and parachute descents when he made his first jump out of an aircraft for the movie at a thousand feet. By 1918, he had developed his own static line parachute, jumping with it several times and promoting it to the U.S. Army. Irvin joined the Army Air Service Parachute Research Team at McCook Field near Dayton, Ohio, and developed the first modern parachute. On the 28th of April 1919, using the Type A 28-foot backpack parachute, Volunteer Leslie Irvin, flying in a de Havilland DH-9 biplane, jumped and manually pulled the ripcord, fully deploying his chute at a thousand feet to become the first American to jump from an airplane and manually open a parachute in mid-air. The new chute performed flawlessly, which is more than can be said for Irvin's ankles when he broke one on the landing. Less than two months later, Irving had formed the Irving Air Chute Company, the world's first parachute designer and manufacturer. Legend has it that Irving was inadvertently changed to Irving with a G by a secretary who mistakenly tacked the G onto the end of the name and the company never bothered to correct the mistake until 1970. The Dayton Herald's aviation editor, predicting more jumps in the future, suggested that a club should be formed. Two years later, Irvin's company instituted the Caterpillar Club, awarding a gold pin to pilots who successfully bailed out of a disabled aircraft using an Irvin parachute. At the end of World War II, the number of members with the Irvin pins had grown to over 34,000, though the total of people saved by Irving parachutes is estimated to be 100,000. Now, whilst a parachute is often worn in an aircraft, it's hardly a very suave item of flying clothing for the debonair pilot, so Irvin designed and manufactured the classic sheepskin flying jacket that bears his name. Irvin's jacket was superb, made from heavyweight sheepskin. Its thick natural wool provided incredible insulation, and whilst the sheepskin was considered heavyweight, the jacket itself was comparatively light and remarkably comfortable. Irvin insisted on the most supple sheepskin. In a cramped cockpit, movement was already restricted and no pilot or crew would want to be constrained further still. The Irvin jacket was a masterpiece of design, combining warmth and comfort with mobility. The jacket had long sleeves zipped to enable gauntlets to be worn. 
The wide collar could be raised to provide excellent insulation around the neck, head and face, while a belt was fitted at the waist to keep out uncomfortable draughts. The original jackets didn't have pockets, as these were not needed, but more modern versions have them. Irvin was producing his jackets at Letchworth in England, and he supplied the Royal Air Force during the Battle of Britain and throughout most of World War II. The jacket was so popular that he had to enlist the services of subcontractors in order to meet demand. The subcontractors are often held responsible for little variations in the pattern of the jacket made during the war. For example, an additional small angle panel above each hip. But with the war on, almost everything was scarce, including supplies of high-quality sheepskin. So large panels would be made by patching together smaller offcuts. The variation in the original jackets was, as often or not, resourceful thinking by the seamstresses, determined to keep their boys warm and safe as they defended the skies. World War II also meant that flying clothing was altered for more devious means. Clutty Hutton worked for MI9, a branch of military intelligence that, apart from other things, invented escape and evasion equipment for downed airmen. He was renowned for reinventing the silk escape and evasion map that was issued to all flyers. He also discovered the qualities of mulberry leaf paper, in that maps printed on tissue from these leaves had excellent durability and could be pulled up, put in water to soak and then flattened out without creasing or fading. These maps could be laminated inside playing cards and such, which, when soaked, could be peeled open. Hutton also devised uniforms that could be reversed so that the dark lining looked like a civilian jacket. Flying boots were an obvious giveaway for airmen trying to blend in and avoid capture, so Hutton invented the 1943 escape boot. These consisted of a black leather laced shoe with zip-up suede leggings. The principle was simple. In the event of landing in enemy territory, the wearer would separate the leggings from the shoe by using the folded pocket knife that was held in a special pocket in the right boot. The walking shoe was less conspicuous and more comfortable than a conventional flying boot, and the leggings could then be reassembled to make a waistcoat for extra warmth. That design remained in service with the RAF until the mid-1950s. Hutton also provided the boots with hollow heels to hide maps and other escape equipment. As clever and practical as British flying clothing was, it didn't really compare with the style and panache of some American flying jackets. I've already mentioned the iconic Irving jacket adopted by the RAF, but the American issue jackets started with the 1927 A1 made by a number of contractors. It had a knitted waistband and cuffs, which not only insulated the jacket from cold air, but gave it a particularly flattering fit, high on the waist. The A1 also had flat pockets near the waist, but the size and stitching of these vary greatly 
depending on the contractor or whether they were used by the Air Corps or Navy. And goatskin, sheepskin and horsehide were all used at different times. Charles Lindbergh had a well-worn A1 style jacket which he wore before completing the first solo transatlantic flight in 1927. The A2 flight jacket arrived in the early 1930s and became standard issue for the Air Corps. First made from a seal brown horsehide leather with a silk lining, the quality of the jackets fell later to a goatskin leather with cotton lining. They were so cool, in fact, that when Steve McQueen played Virgil Hiltz in the movie The Great Escape, he, of course, wore an A2. The G1 picked up where the A2 left off. It was adopted by the Army and Navy as early as the 30s, but didn't replace the A2 amongst the Air Corps pilots until 1943. This new jacket featured a molten collar and a bi-swing back for greater arm movement, although the zipper lacks the A2's wind flap detail. And yes, it's the jacket you'll see Maverick wear in the movie Top Gun. Whilst some mistakenly refer to these as bomber jackets, the B3 was a bulky sheepskin jacket with a heavy-duty sheep fur lining designed specifically for the high-altitude needs of the bombers. The slimmed-down B-6 arrived on the scene around 1943 and reflected the improving conditions for pilots in their cosy cockpits. The B-10 was a cloth jacket that came with an alpaca fur collar and lining. It very closely resembled the original G1 jacket, with the same style pockets and zip closures. The jacket was released in various olive drab and navy blue and became incredibly popular even outside the Air Corps. The B-10's brief reign ended in 1944 with the flight jacket that would endure for the rest of the 1940s and become what most people today view as a proper bomber jacket. The B-15 had a molten fur collar and the wool-knit waist and cuffs of many of the previous models, but was produced in a variety of different shell materials, including nylon. Also new was a pen pocket high up on the left upper arm of the jacket, a detail that would remain and grow for decades to come. The jacket went mainstream just as the so-called jet age began with Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier in 1947 and the United States Air Force becoming its own independent military branch in the same year. It's as fashionable now as it looked on Yeager as he posed beside glamorous Glennis. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>